Good morning. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you all weekend long. We have really enjoyed our time together. Lisa and I have just enjoyed uh, eating and talking with you and sharing from God's Word. And this is the concluding message, obviously. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Paul's prayer uh, for the Philippians. And so we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 9 through 11. So let's give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul's writing, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father God, we just pray again that you would uh, just be with us by your spirit. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Father, we thank you for your love that has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Adrian uh, Crezzo wrote a little piece called Seven People That Left Their Entire Fortune to a complete stranger. And she tells a story about a struggling actress by the name of Corin Ward. And it's a story about how a physician, a doctor, that this struggling actress did not know, how this doctor loved her and admired her from a distance. She'd never met him. And the author takes the story from a, um, an article that was originally published in 1930, issue of the Pittsburgh uh, Post-Gazette. And it described this, this struggling actress who received a communication from, her, from a lawyer in the city where she lived and worked that notified her that she had been mentioned in his client's will. So she went to the office at the agreed-upon time, and uh, he said, well, you know, my client... Uh, was a physician. Uh, he, he only, he's known as Dr. Mazaros in the will. And she said, well, I don't know a Dr. Mazaros. And he says, well, he, he kind of knew you. He admired you. And he has left you his entire life savings. She was stunned. It turned out that the doctor, Dr. Mazaros, is how he went by, um, admired her for afar, just kind of almost fell in love with her. But he struggled with debilitating fears and anxieties, and so he never worked up the courage to actually meet her and talk to her. But at the same time, he just couldn't shake this, this sense that he had fallen head over heels with this actress. And so, um, you know, he just left his entire life savings, which back then, 1930s, was $50,000. That's quite a sum of money. You could say that the doctors, you know, you know, in his mind, he loved her, but it was never expressed in words or actions. Or you could say that his was a love that was never fully realized. Now, you may be thinking, I wish that my doctor, one of my doctors, might mention me in his will, and I have a, a few doctor friends in my church who I have shared this story with. Yeah. He's a good friend. But I want you to consider for a moment um, kind of the words of C.S. Lewis and when he reflected upon uh, loving God, what it means to love God and to express our love for God and to express our delight in God. 
He said that when we are loving God and expressing our delight in him, that it should be an overflow of worship, an overflow of praise, and an overflow of chatting about God. And he talks about, you know, when you enjoy something, when you really enjoy it, whether he says, whether it's a well-written piece of poetry or literature, uh, whether it is a walkabout in the country, uh, English gardens and countryside, or whether, in TJ's case, it's playing a fun game. You know, it's, you know, whatever that is that you enjoy, sharing that experience with other people is not just simply expressing your joy and delight in that. It's actually completing your joy and delight in that same thing. That's why when we see a funny video, we often uh, share it with 10 different people. We don't grow tired of sharing it over and over with other individuals because it doesn't just express our delight in it. It actually completes our delight in that thing. And the theme of this marvelous letter to the Philippians is one of the themes is enjoyment, joy, rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord. And so Paul is praying and he's praying for these folks and he wants the Philippians to share the love of God with others, not at a safe distance like that doctor, not like a safe distance that sometimes we do in our fellowship with one another, but a love that flows up to God and out to others. It's a geyser-sized love. Now, uh, we have in-ground sprinklers. We're really blessed. Where we live in Chesapeake, we have these in-ground sprinklers that's uh, tied to a wonderful well. And uh, every year I have to get them fine-tuned because inevitably some of those sprinklers, especially the misters, sometimes they just kind of sink into the ground. You know, the, the moles are tunneling. And, and so how do you find those? We have to go out there and you just listen for the gurgle and you kind of stick your hand in the mud and you pull them out and then you call the guy, right? Because they won't stay in place. What Paul is praying for the Philippians and what I have been praying for you is not a gurgle-sized love, but a geyser-sized love that flows up to God and out to people. So we're going to look at three things this morning. First of all, we're going to look at uh, love abounding through self-giving, selfless giving. Second of all, a love guided by a discerning wisdom. And then third, love-bearing excellent fruit. First of all, love abounding through selfless giving. Look again, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It's just overflowing. Now, uh, as we've been kind of talking about in our retreat, you know, our culture's concept of love is that of more of a feeling. In romance, you know, it's called falling in love. It's a relationship kind of based on mutual admiration, this emotional give and take. You know, you show your affection towards me, and I will show my affection back towards you. And, you know, it's not just in romantic relationships that this kind of this emotional give and take takes place. We can transfer this type of cultural love to other types of non-romantic relationships, can't we? It's kind of a, a relationship based on I will love you if or I will love you because. But if that because or if is threatened anyway, then I might not love you at all. 
And for sure, our love does involve feelings and emotions. We've been talking about the, at the retreat about the importance uh, that we are made in the image of God, and then God has given us emotions. They're a very important part of how we experience the world around us and how we express our love to God and our love for each other. Because we're image bearers, you know, emotions help us to connect um, and express our love for God and our singing and our prayers. I hope um, that um, God has stirred your affections and your love as we express our joy in him. But our emotions also help us to connect with others in sometimes just very profound ways. Uh, when my sister was uh, 37 years old, uh, she came down with cancer and she died at the age of 39. Um, and she, um, she left behind three young children. And I will tell you, in walking through the pain of that experience with my family, that a weeping hug meant more to me many times than a thousand words. It's just that love that was expressed and communicated in and through our emotions. But here's the thing. We know this, that our feelings come and go like the weather. And so if we're going to experience the deep and lasting uh, relationship, the relational love that God intends for us to express and experience in the body of Christ as we seek first the kingdom of God, then our, then our love must be something uh, based on something much more profound than just mere feelings and emotions. It must be a selfless love, a self-giving love. Isn't it great that God didn't uh, just uh, love us because he just thought that we were a warm, fuzzy uh, people that he couldn't resist? But the scriptures say this, that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for you that while you were still stuck in your sin, Christ died for you. Ephesians 5 says that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see it? Did you catch it? This selfless, self-giving love. A few years ago, uh, I read this marvelous biography of George Whitfield by uh, Arnold Dalimore, and I just highly recommend it. There's the thick version, there's a condensed version, either one, there's super. And you know the story of, the, um, of John and Charles Wesley, the Wesley brothers, and George Whitfield. Uh, they were great British evangelists back in the 18th century. They led the revival movements in, um, in England. George Whitfield came across the seas to us, thank the Lord. And so many of you know that um, tens of thousands of people were uh, led to Christ through these revival movements, through their preaching, fearless preaching of God's word. And all three of them started Christian societies over in England that became the seed form uh, for Methodism. Whitfield, of course, uh, held very strong convictions uh, based on the, the theology of the Ref, uh, Reformation, the reformers like Calvin and uh, Luther. But John uh, Wesley was more of the Arminian persuasion in his theology. And over time, you know, these three friends, two of them were brothers, of course, but they were all friends together. Uh, George, uh, John Wesley began to kind of despise the theology of George Whitfield. In fact, John uh, Wesley began to break fellowship with, um, with Whitfield 
and would not allow Whitfield to um, share his pulpit and preach to the societies. And in fact, when George Whitfield was over here uh, in the U.S. preaching and traveling, John Wesley actually began to publish sermons denouncing his friend's theology in the, in the public papers in London. But the two of them became... Eventually, even though their relationship was fractured and broken, the two of them became closest friends. What happened? Was there some type of relational peace summit? Did Ken Sandy's, um, you know, peacemakers ministry make a, just an early uh, visit into the 18th century? What happened? This is what happened. Charles, John's brother, married Sarah. And that awakened in John this longing, this desire that he too in the midst of his busy ministry, that he too would like to be married. And so he uh, began to uh, just kind of share his feelings and affections for a young lady by the name of Sarah, who happened to be one of his nurses when John was once gravely ill. She was an RN that attended him. But this Grace, it was her name, Grace um, was also the nurse of uh, one of um, the pastors that worked for John Wesley. His name was John Bennett. In fact, they became pre-engaged, but Grace started developing feelings for, for John, and Charles would have none of it. He knew of this Grace woman, but he thought that uh, she was not worthy to bear the Wesley name. So one day he saddled up, he rode hundreds of miles to her hometown, put her on a horse, they rode to the hometown of John Bennett, where he promptly officiated their wedding. That was the end of that. John Wesley, Charles's brother, was absolutely crushed and devastated. It sunk him into the deep, deepest of depressions. And George Whitfield learned of this and sought him out. And when he found his friend, he just sat with John Wesley and he wept with him. John Wesley found that he had no greater friend than George Whitfield. George Whitfield was once again welcomed in his pulpits, would of course go on to preach John Wesley's funeral. You see, George Whitfield showed John Wesley, John, you can't cancel my love for you because you can't cancel God's unquitting, welcoming love that flows through me in Jesus Christ. See that love, a definition, needs to be selfless and self-giving. Second thing I want you to see this morning is this. It is a love that is not just self-giving, but it is a love that is discerned through wisdom. It's a discerning love. Look at verse 9 again. And it is my prayer that you, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So let's unpack that a little bit. So the love that Paul prays for is really in sharp contrast to the love of that culture and the love of our culture. We just talked about that just a moment ago. A love that is based on getting rather than giving. It's a love that is based on feelings rather than sacrifice. It is love that is based on blind loyalty rather than wisdom. 
we, we see this all around us. We've experienced this in our own life where maybe a friend's blind loyalty uh, to their other friend would keep that friend from maybe confronting their friend in something that needs to be confronted in their life. They think, well, I just love them so much or love her so much that uh, I'm just not going to go there. I'm not going to confront them, even though they probably need that. We see that that can be mapped onto churches as well. We know that you know, ch- you know, there's churches and entire denominations uh, in our culture, in the, uh, the U.S. and North America, uh, that they are abandoning God's scriptural teaching on God's, you know, God's design for marriage and romance and sex. We've been talking about that throughout the weekend. And they're kind of latching on uh, to the culture's definition of these things in the name of what? Redefine love. Or there's, you know, we know of churches that maybe cling so dearly to God's word and theological truth and the purity of theology that they just kind of lack love in their ministry. Jesus talked about both extremes where? In Revelation. Remember in Revelation 2 in particular where he praised the church of Ephesus for her doctrinal vigilance but kind of chastened her and just um, called her out for her declining love. Or on the flip side of that, there's uh, the church of Theratira where Jesus commended his great love for people but confronted them on their compromise with falsehood. So we see that true love goes the balance. I love one author said this, that true love seeks truth. It hears it humbly and it seeks, speaks it lovingly. The true love seeks truth. It hears it hum, humbly, and it speaks it lovingly. So here, you know, Paul is praying for the Philippians that God grants them this giving love, this self-giving love that acts on behalf of others. It doesn't just sit there or admires from a safe distance. It acts, it's self-giving, but... It knows the other person's well-being. It's discerning and knowledge. It's discerning and wisdom. It's not just an act, a love that is active, but it's discerning. It discerns how to love you. It discerns the true well-being that is called for. And I'm just still learning this as I kind of approach like 28 years in the ministry, I'm still kind of discerning what this means to, to love like this, to love people through the lens of the gospel. One thing that, that really kind of helps frame this, uh, some of my professors at Westminster, as I was uh, getting a degree in pastoral counseling, would use kind of, a, kind of the lens that we are all saints, that we are all sinners, and that we are all sufferers. And that kind of helps orient this, uh, orient us to how we can be discerning and knowledge in our love. For example, we all know that we are saints, right? If you are in Christ Jesus, that means uh, that God has redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb, uh, that he has set us apart from the world, and he calls us his beloved. Uh, We are the set-apart ones. We We are the saints. But we are also sinners, right? Because of our fallen nature. Even though we are redeemed by Christ, uh, we are still sinners. Now, sin uh, does not have domination over us if you are in Christ Jesus. Certainly, sin's influence, because of the 
remnants of sin is ongoing in your life. But sin influences the way we act and the way we speak and the way we think. We're also not just saints and sinners, we're also sufferers, aren't we? But we're sinned against. But our bodies and minds are infected by the curse. You know, we long for the day. That day when that curse is reversed and that we are made whole and we are healed. Body and soul. But because we're sufferers, our suffering can tempt us to sin in ways that we never imagined before. And our sin can multiply and make trouble in our suffering. So, we need biblical discernment. We need knowledge to love each other as saints, sinners, and sufferers. Let me give you just a kind of a, some, an example. So, take ang- anger. Let's just say you have a friend, somebody that's just radiating a- anger, and you can actually see uh, this person's circle of friends are just kind of shrinking because this person is just exuding and radiating anger. Maybe she or he is blind to that. And, you know, oftentimes we think that anger is just, just a product of hurt. Oh, this person must just be hurting. And what is the cause or root cause of this person's pain? And it is true. We see examples in, in Scripture where uh, suffering can indeed stir our anger. Think of Job and his not-so-great counseling friends and how Job is just kind of being stirred up in his anger, and rightfully so. But then... We have to consider other examples that anger can also be a result of pride and idolatrous demands that offend God. Think of Cain trying to boss God to accept the sacrifices uh, that he was presenting. Or Jonah, Jonah and his, his kind of this, his prideful nationalism and his arrogance and his anger at Nineveh. You know, we're all saints. We're all sinners and we are all sufferers. And every single one of us needs to, make, uh, to just, uh, we need the gospel to make beautiful what sin and suffering mar and scar in our life. Every one of us is steeped in self-deception. Every single one of us is steeped in God-forgetfulness. We need to grow in the practice of one anothering through love that is self-giving, but love that is discerning. I think, yes, was it uh, yesterday or no, it was this morning I shared with you a story by John Ortberg, and I'm going to share another one. He describes a day when he was traveling somewhere with his family on a road trip in their car, and they just had one of those classic family moments, you know, and one of the kids had done something wrong, and uh, they were, all the circumstantial evidence was piled up against this child. It was overwhelming, uh, but this child was protesting their innocence. And so John Ortberg was, you know, he's doing his cross-examination. They were in the car. He said he was just at his, the, his finest Perry Mason moment where he's going to bring down all of the evidence to bear and just kind of break down what happened when all of a sudden this child changed tactics on him. She got a flash of genius. She got this extremely hurt look on her face and says, Daddy, you don't think that I would lie to you, do you? And this is what he said. 
was about to reflexively say, well, no, honey, of course not. I would never think something like that of you. When suddenly I thought, what am I saying? The heart is deceitful above all things. So I actually told this child this. Do I think that you would lie to me? You're darn right I do. He doesn't tell lies. I tell lies. Your mom lies, that's for sure. (laughs) Everyone I know lies. I know in your best self, you want to speak the truth. But for sure, I think that you're capable of lying. We all are, and we all do. Trying to grow spiritually, this is his comment afterwards, trying to grow spiritually without hearing the truth about yourself from someone else is like trying to do brain surgery on yourself without a mirror. His was a discerning love. It was discerning by the grace of God the well-being of someone he loved. Third thing I want you to see this morning is that love, and this is the last point, love uh, must bear excellent fruit. It's a love that bears excellent fruit. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. So that you may approve what is excellent, so to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we see that the fruit that is nurtured in the soil of God's love, Romans Romans 5, Romans 8, that Romans 8 love, that God demonstrated his love for you, that while you were yet sinners, that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. The fruit that is nurtured in the soil of God's love has the capacity to prove what is excellent. That's really good news. Marcus uh, Bachmuel says this. He described it this way. What does it, what does it mean to have a, a love that proves what is excellent? He says it this way. It's a spirit-enabled ability to discern what is superlative seen in the life of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? In other words, that's very helpful because, you know, life is just so full of choices. And there's the obvious, like murder is really bad. And there's the less obvious, like hey, this, maybe this act of kindness um, that just goes viral on the internet because it's uncommon kindness. But then there's always this kind of this gray, muddy, murky area where we're not too sure. And maybe you're reading a political article or maybe you're even reading a, uh, an article put out one of our denominational publications or whatever, and maybe you're just not even sure what to think about it. And so what do we do? We just kind of scroll down to the comments section because we don't know what to think. We're unsure. At least I do that. And so, you know, growing deeper in our experience of God's love must be informed by God's word it must be guided by his spirit. And when that, takes pl- happen, when, that, when that takes place, it's rooted in God's word, informed by his word, guided by his spirit, we begin to choose the best, the best priorities, the best in habits, the best in entertainment, the best in pursuits, things that radiate the beauty of Jesus. And that makes us wiser and growing, uh, growing in discernment and how we love others. Then, of course, he says he goes on to say that we need to grow in holiness and blamelessness in our, our love. Uh, purity, holiness are interchangeable. Pure means to grow in holiness. Blameless, that's kind of an interesting concept here. It's someone who does not stumble. And the concept here is this, not putting anything in our path 
where we would just uh, stumble in our walk with the Lord or putting stumbling blocks in the paths of others because we love them. And then we are to grow in the fruit of righteousness, verse 11. Isn't it remarkable how God uses, he orchestrates things. He orchestrates the trials and the tests and the sufferings of life to grow us in these, this fruit of righteousness. He says in Romans chapter 5, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because of why? Because God's love has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. God uses these tests and trials and sufferings to purify us, to edit the storylines and chapters that we insist on writing for ourselves. Because if we just wrote our own chapter and storylines, it would contain very little suffering, very little trials, very little testing, and sadly, as a result, very little love for others. But God uses the trials and the sufferings to write a better story. We began this retreat with a story about Tolkien and the Lord of the Ring. Uh, actually, the hobbits, right? We, specifically the hobbits. That's where we're going to end the retreat this morning. In 1938, Tolkien wrote a letter to his editor, Stanley Unwin, explaining why he was behind schedule in his final draft of The Hobbit. He explained to Unwin that um, instead of drafting more material, he was going to go back and rewrite the first three chapters of The Hobbit. Why would he do that? Because he had received some excellent criticism, some hard criticism from some of his readers. One of them from one of his best friends, C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis, he, he loved the concept, loved the story, but... He just offered some friendly criticism. He said that there was too much dialogue, too much chatter, too much silly hobbit talk, he told his friends. He said all this chatter was dragging down the storyline. So Tolkien grumbled to Lewis. He didn't like that. In fact, Tolkien said this, the trouble is hobbit talk amuses me more than the adventures themselves. But Tolkien knew that Lewis loved him. In fact, Tolkien was instrumental in bringing Lewis to Christ. So Tolkien painfully rewrote the material. He cut nearly half of the dialogue, page after page, chapter after chapter, uh, cutting out chatter and picking up the action. It was a process of change that involved painful struggle but it resulted in a better story. God has placed trials in your life that I don't even know about, sufferings, difficult relationships, difficult situations to purify you, to plant you deeper and deeper into the experience and the enjoyment of God's love. To the glory and to the praise of God. And that's really, really good news. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we pray this morning that you would give us strength and help to survive our many failures and flops of loving others. 
Or we pray that you would really help us to, to believe at the core of our hearts uh, the love that you've poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that you would show us the cross more clearly and more often uh, where the power of your love is so clearly demonstrated, where our sin has been crushed, and where our names are written in the wounds of our Savior. We love you. Help us to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.